Greetings, I'm Steve Bancor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Our guest today is Terry Stewart. Uh, What I love about Terry, he has been in the business. Uh, You ready for this? I I think the Stones were still releasing some of their earlier music. (laughs) The Beatles had just broken up. Uh, (laughs) A lot of the bands that are now popular, Imagine Dragons and others, those guys weren't even born yet. Uh, Terry, welcome. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. And I was the lead singer in a rock band back in the 60s. Let's hear it. What was the name of the band? <laughs> the Nobleman. It was Fort Lauderdale. The Nobleman playing in it for Fort Lauderdale. What kind of music yeah. did you guys play? We played, uh, we came along at a time that the Everly Brothers and the Beach Boys and Elvis Presley were uh, on the scene and the Beatles were coming in and the Rolling Stones and everybody, uh, you know, started. So we played all that kind of music. So, so the best part about that is, well, first of all, that's really cool. Uh, The best part about this, you know, one of our continuing themes of this podcast is the diversity of backgrounds that uh, our city managers, county administrators bring to the table, that there's no single degree or single career path. And I think we've now set a new standard, Terry, with my opening question will be, have you ever been in a rock band? The uh, But 51 years in local government, seven years in your current position. And for those who do not know, Arcadia is one of those in-between small cities. Uh, but f- if you drew a triangle from Tampa to Fort Myers, uh, drew a line from those two, and connected them and moved it a little east, that's where Arcadia is, right? We're about an hour due east of Sarasota. And a quick update, my bio, I should have updated before I sent it. I'm pushing 54 years now. So we got a three-year-old bio. So you've been there, uh, <laughs> I guess that means like eight years you've been at, in the city of Arcadia. Uh, uh, just about. Wow. That, that, that is, that is a, f- a phenomenal thing. So what I want to start with, because of your long view and what you've seen, uh, and you'll as you'll learn, I have some opinions on this myself, what are some of the changes uh, and, and, and and listen, I don't want to just talk about the changes for the purpose of, you know, being nostalgic and always saying, oh, back in the good old days. But what are some of the changes? And I want to be mindful of what have we learned from that that can apply going forward? I pause for a second. I, I teach a course at FSU and I make my students read the history of advertising. It's about media, media selection, uh, about a book called The Attention Merchants. Fantastic book. And it goes to the history of advertising. And the reason is, if you're going to be an advertiser and you don't know what was going on with fake news in 1833 or the changing dynamics of the television, et cetera, et cetera, back then, you won't know what's going, what's going to happen going forward, right? Or you're less able to understand. So, Terry, help us a little bit. What are some of the big changes you've noticed in local government and management of local government? In my mind, the biggest change in local government in the state of Florida has centered around the idea of home rule. Uh, right about still, the time- Do we still have that? <laughs> that's a darn good question. Uh, if you look at it in relation to what was legislated uh, back in 68, I believe it was, mm-hmm. uh, 
it doesn't even look remotely the same. Uh, what we had back in those days was a, a real innovative, good working concept about allowing local government to govern themselves. Uh, in the last 20 years, especially, uh, it has been eroded tremendously. Um, it seems like the government in the state of Florida continually erodes more and more of our home rule authority and pushes uh, unfunded mandates down on us, uh, takes away, has taken away our ability uh, to what few uh, revenue gathering sources we had. They've either eliminated or severely limited many of those. Well, you, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, and I noticed in your bio, before getting into management, you were in, you were in fire services. You were a fire chief. Yes, and sir. The first bill, for those that don't know, the first bill signed by Governor Jeb Bush was a bill to mandate increased benefits paid not by the state and no money to follow, but the state telling local government how much, what kind of benefits they need to give to their fire service folks, fire and police, and that law is still in effect. So that would be a, a leading example. Uh, it, it would be a, a, an excellent example. Now, that's not to say that everything that the state says that we should do is a bad thing. Um, but when they don't, they don't allow you to be a part of the conversation uh, and they take away your right to rule, um, that's not a good thing. Uh, what I, I'll give you a perfect example. We're mm -hmm. a city of just under 8,000 people, very rural. Uh, citrus and cattle are the bywords here. The city is 136 years old, all right? Very different atmosphere than the city of Miami. You know, what, what cookie cutter thing uh, fits Miami may or may not fit Arcadia and vice versa. Uh, so the things that are important to our communities uh, in, in large part should be decided by those communities. Yeah, and with what gets me about the erosion of home rule is it started, and pre-Jeb, pre right, uh, was large issues. And we all get the joke about speed limits. Every city shouldn't be deciding what the speed limit is on their roads, right? And so there's some some thresholds. But each time a large corporation is doing business in Florida, it seems, and they want, you know, like, like I use the example of Uber, Uber's new on the scene. They're negotiating with the city of Fort Lauderdale, the city of Tampa on, hey, we need license plates in the front. We need lighting to show you need to park here, park there. And they come to Tallahassee. And, and that's not one of those issues like speed limits or pollution or whatever. That's zoning local operations thing. And they just go, guess what, local government? You can no longer negotiate where rideshare happens in your community. They can block traffic. They can stand out in the road when they want. We're going to set the standards and we're going to wipe all you guys down on that one. Yep, they did. And, and it's gotten brazen. I mean, when they wiped out the authority of uh, the Miami-Dade Transportation Authority to even exist because they just didn't like something they did, that was, I think, the the high watermark or the low watermark, as it were, of, of home rule, getting rid of home rule. And regular taxis, we used to have a taxi ordinance here. We have lots of taxis, very few Ubers. Uh, we essentially had to do away with our taxi ordinance because it it was the same thing. If I can't regulate Uber, how can I regulate a taxi? Oh, good point. So they had collateral collateral impact as well. Yes, it did. Absolutely. I mean, they're now telling you when you can hold elections for referenda, when you can hold elections for 
um, uh, local government. Uh, you know, I remember back in the day, people said, we're going to have our city elections in March so we can focus just on these elections and, and the cities, you know, can hardly do that anymore. And the idea of unfunded mandates is not restricted to just the legislature. The ability for constitutional amendments from from the public, as this uh, one people don't realize, is this fifteen dollar an hour thing. This year, I gave the city council gave our uh, employees an eight percent raise, and that only gets us half the way we need to get within two years in order to meet that mandate of fifteen dollars an hour. All right, you you don't just give the lowest person a pay raise because if you do that, then you have compression. You have that person making more than the person above them, and that person makes more than the one above him or her. So it has a ripple effect throughout. So it affects the whole pay scale of an entire organization. So you look at the everybody knows that personnel costs are the highest single cost of local government. Right. Okay. Uh, That's your greatest ongoing cost. And you just increased your total budget on one item alone by 8%. And next year, it's going to hit us again. And then again, the year after that. And almost every community is exactly the same. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying is I'm going to guess that if you were still at the city of Fort Lauderdale or Pembroke Pines where you used to work, that wouldn't be as big of a deal. Because the cost of living there is significantly, my son lives in Pembroke Pines. He has a very small one-bedroom apartment. It's nice. It's in a nice neighborhood. It's $1,600 a month for rent. Plus, when all is said and done, it's it's $1,850 for a one-bedroom yeah. apartment. I'm pretty confident I could find a place in Acadia, a house to rent for that much money. And so the cost differential we apply that uniformly, and now it's in our constitution. Different issue. It wasn't intended to be a home rule thing, but each community has to deal with this in a very different way. That's got to be a much bigger impact on a city, a rural community like Acadia, than it does on a Fort Lauderdale or Miami Beach. Um, uh, this is not a, a matter of, of bragging. It's a fact. We are the sixth poorest community in the state of Florida from an economic perspective, uh, people's income, et cetera. Um, and for us, all of these things impact us so much more significantly than they impact others. Um, it, it creates a real issue. And we're in the midst of trying to rebuild both our water, our sewer system, and our stormwater system. They're all antiquated. We, we have pipes in the ground over 100 years old. And uh, we found a way to afford it. But every time we turn around, we keep getting new things placed on our backs as far as costs are concerned, at some point, there's a breaking point. Yeah, and you, one would think with your proximity, I know you're a little far from Okeechobee, but your proximity to that to your east, the Everglades to your south, that we would be especially mindful of making sure some of those cracked pipes aren't leaking nitrates, phosphates, and other nefarious substances into the groundwater, which will eventually make its way down to the Everglades. Our, our outfall is the Peace River, which goes into Charlotte Harbor. Well, there you go. So, uh, like I said, there you go. Um, we're all connected. Yeah, we're probably going to spend, of, of a city of 8,000 in population, four and a half square miles, over, over a period of about eight to 10 years, we'll spend $60 million plus rebuilding our systems. Wow. I mean, for a small little town, that's a lot of money. So I want to take I want to I want to stick to our plan here, which is 
So you're seeing this erosion of home rule, narrowing the playing field uh, on which cities and counties can operate. What do you suggest for city managers coming into the world now as 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 a way to work through that? I mean, we can't. Un- I know the League of Cities is does a great job of advocating. Uh, for local government and the independence of local government and the appropriateness of home rule. Again, not on everything. Not, nobody's ever going to say, oh, yeah, we should allow, you know, violence in the streets in our community or, you know, we, we, we don't want the state to tell us I can't punch somebody in the nose. That would be silly. But on zoning, planned urban development, uh, growth management, all those things that, you know, make cities unique and different um, from each other, uh, the, the state's telling them what they can and cannot do. So what advice would you give for city managers and others coming through the ranks today, knowing what you know moving forward? My answer is going to take a little path. I won't take long with it, but uh, That's I'll okay. I'm, to- I'm the king of paths. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get to the point. Uh, a part, a huge part of our profession revolves around the ethics of our profession. The ICMA, FCCMA, Ethics are a, a large part of our career, our profession, our professional life. Um, one of the things that they insist that we not do is engage in politics, um, that we try to stay out of wherever possible the arena of politics. Unfortunately, there's a lot of city managers. Isn't that, that like a lot like telling a fish not to swim? Well, uh, no, it's not. Uh, I think mostly what is meant is that you do not support candidates, you don't contribute to candidates, you don't. Uh, okay. Okay, I get speak it. Out, you don't speak out on local issues, etc. However, there there's a caveat there. Whenever your whenever your local uh, elected body chooses a path and gives you the direction to go make sure that that happens. It's okay to engage in politics from that perspective because it's not personal. You're representing your community. And the things that you just mentioned, the things that you just talked about are the kinds of things that I believe city managers are often reluctant to engage in. Uh, And there's some sense to, uh, it makes good sense for elected officials to, to do that. But sometimes elected officials uh, look to us to help provide that uh, strength, the guidance, um, information, direction, if you will. So I, I really like this. So what you're saying is, and I, this is this is enlightening to me because, so the League of Cities is, you know, legislators get elected, 160 of them show up, even former city commissioners who get elected to the state house, state senate, turn their back on the local government. I remember a woman who went from being a city commissioner to a state house member, her first bill that she introduced was to limit, that to say local government cannot limit the input of citizens at city commission meetings, cannot put time limits on it. Now, you and I both know 90% of the people who stand at the mic are, are there week in, week out, and that's fine, but you have to set a limit, right? We've heard from you, and as we know, city Commissioners are in publics with their constituents. They're on sitting on the stands at baseball games. There is about as engaged and close to the public as a, as a public official can be. You go to Tallahassee, and, and they literally will say, okay, we have 10 seconds, 10 seconds for the public to give us input on this thing. I've literally watched that happen. 
Okay. You can barely get up there and say, hi, my name is Steve Vancor. Please vote no on this bill. Oh, you've exceeded your time. And they, so they, they turn their backs, but what you're saying is it should be the role at some degree of city administrators, which is your title, city managers, counting to, to coach, encourage their commission to reach out to lawmakers and say, Hey, uh, I think your, your, your Senator is, is Ben Albritton. Uh, yes. Really good guy. Going to be Senate president. How cool would it be if all of the city managers and all the city commissioners in his district said, please don't abandon us. Please don't tell Acadia what to do and how to run our government when they went up there. That would be very influential. I think. Is that what you're saying that they should get involved encouraging the commissioners to be part of that conversation? Absolutely. I think, uh, being a part of the conversation at the state, at the county and the state level is always important for local government. Um, I, I've traveled to Tallahassee on many occasions representing issues that's uh, city, of cities that I've worked for. Uh, it's an entirely appropriate thing for a manager to do. Uh, and it's important for managers to do. Um, but some managers are reluctant to do that because, um, you know, Politics is a tough business, and engaging in politics, if, if you anger the wrong person, sometimes it can come back to bite you. I personally well, know yeah. That's <laughs> why we have a managers in transition program. Uh, yes. But if, if the managers aren't going, I mean, this is enlightening to me because I know we, you know, we have our home rule heroes and the staff come down and they meet with commissioners and they encourage the board but what you're saying is city managers should get engaged in at least educating their commissioners to the impacts of year in, year out, year in, year out, passing these bills, which, and it's never, you know, they tried this big one this year and, it, you know, with some mixed success or failures, you might describe it, but each year it's like one more bite, one more chip at, the, uh, at, at that block. And in your, in your long-term, you've seen that those chips really take a hold. Death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So encouraging managers to at least inform and educate their commissioners as to the impacts of the degradation of home rule, how it's hurting your local community and who to talk to. And if, and if, and if, you know, just a few of them did that and, and people were knowing back home, uh, you know, cause Lawmakers, they're, they're relationships people, right? They're connectors. They want to know that when they go back home, everybody loves them. And it's not just about getting the appropriation for the new wastewater treatment plant, which is going to be important, right? You're going to be asking the next Senate president to help pay for that, I'm sure. Well, the wastewater treatment, they passed Senate Bill 64 a couple of years ago that says that by 2032, you can't have outfall from a, a, a wastewater plant into surface water any longer. And they gave you how much money to, to implement that? Um, I haven't seen any yet. <laughs> <laughs> You've been standing outside with your pocket open saying, please, we need I, the money. I, I mentioned that to a state legislator, and he says, oh, there's SRF, which is the state revolving fund where you can go to borrow money to do these projects. But you've also got to have the, the, the financial um, standing to be able to borrow the money. Right. If you're a poor community like mine, how are you? I just got a, a cost, an estimated cost on rebuilding our wastewater plant. Fifty million dollars. Fifty million. 
Five zero. Right. Five zero on top of the sixty million we're spending fixing the uh, the pipes, the water collection and distribution lines, uh, and not to mention our roadways, which are messed up, and our stormwater, which is it, it's a never-ending job. We figured out how to do a big part of it, and then the next thing I know, we got that done. The the same year that we finished the first phase of our uh, sewer system rebuild, they came out with Senate Bill sixty four. All right. And no money to follow. That. No money to follow. I'm Here's a good idea. It's a good idea. It's a great. It's a grand idea. Actually, what it eventually means, a lot of people don't realize this. All right, that glass of water that you drink eventually is going to be coming from the wastewater plant. That's oh, yeah. what. Yeah. Or deep well injection. Or deep well yeah. injection, which is going to have other issues related to surface water. Yeah. I'm. Okay. <laughs> no, tell me, tell uh, me, what are you thinking? Uh, deep well injection. I'm I'm not a big fan of it. Mm -hmm. I, I we do not yet know and won't probably for some decades uh, what what the outfall or outcome of that is going to be. Um, everybody's assuming because of the science that's known um, that it's going to be safe, brother. I hope they're correct. Well, you know, it's interesting because you know they used to be. Uh, the solution to pollution was dilution, right? So we ran pipes out into the ocean. And now we realize, and eh, that may not be the case because we have these coral reefs, chemical training, yeah. you know, the, 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 the uh, what do they call it? The accumulation load eventually yes. changes the chemistry of even the ocean. And so now that's no longer, you know, the science is constantly changing. So you're right. We don't know what that science is going to be. And Certainly putting it into the surface water, especially as Florida continues to grow, is probably not the best idea. Uh, treating it, uh, sending only, you know, high quality effluent reuse, but then who's going to be the first politician to accept uh, drinkable reuse, right? Well, it's being done in other parts of the country, you know, right. out west where water is, is such a terribly scarce resource. It's already a reality. Uh, there's a city I used to work for, Cape Coral. Um, Cape Coral, during the last five years that I was there, had a permit to uh, uh, empty its uh, treated wastewater into the Clusahatchee River. We didn't put a single gallon into the Clusahatchee because we had a program of uh, water, sewer, and reclaimed water. Every every property got reclaimed water to water the grass to, you know. Uh, be able to dispose of the uh, the sewage water, and not a single drop of water went into the Caloosahatchee River. So you know, and, and the Caloosahatchee is a really interesting case study because it flows out at Fort Myers, and there's a misbelief that the reason it's cloudy is because of the uh, discharges from Lake Okeechobee, and it's always been. I mean, it predates all of that, right? But on the east. Nobody wants that water because it goes into the Indian River Lagoon on the west. People with docks on the river like we want that water. Well, guess what? You can't have one side of a lake go up and the other side of the lake go down. And so here you guys are doing the right thing for the Calouse, right? You're not putting effluent into the river because that river is already on the edge as it is. Thanks yeah. to you know, some of the outflow of uh, Lake Okeechobee, which, you know, is in of itself another whole problem. So good for you guys for not putting water in there. But 
<laughs> it, uh, the, the, it's a complicated mess, right? Yeah, it is very complicated. And, you know, this, this business that uh, I chose 28 years ago, I've now uh, been in uh, city management longer than I was in the fire department. 28 years I've been in this, 25 in the fire department. Um, I, I can tell you that watching what has happened with local governments with regard to water, um, I started seeing probably 10, 12 years ago, and it doesn't make me a, a prophet by any stretch of the imagination, but many of us could see 10, 12 years ago or more that water was going to be, eventually was going to be something that would be a top major political issue. We're not quite there yet, but it's real close. Oh, well, you know, it sort of is, right? When you when you take all the water-related issues, whether it's um, septic to sewer conversion, whether it's the effluence into the Indian River Lagoon, whether it's the allocation. I mean, one of the most controversial bills this year in the legislature, Senate Bill 2508, popped up at the last minute, and it was about who controls water, um, taking some of it, that power and authority away from the water management districts and shifting it to the agriculture commissioner uh, was perhaps the biggest brouhaha. Short, it was a real short but very violent a small v violent uh, episode. So it's it is becoming a, a big deal when you add up all the different issues related to Everglades restoration, Kissimmee River restoration, spring restoration, land acquisition. Uh, and the Indian River Lagoon runs what three hundred miles along the uh, coast with over six hundred thousand septic tanks flushing into it every day. I, I, I do think it is becoming if not there collectively, the biggest, the biggest threat in Florida, you know, healthcare access, those things too, also big top of the fold stuff. We have dying manatees. Why are they dying? They got no food. Why are they got no food? Because we're polluting uh, our surface water. I mean, our water along the coast. Uh, so I, I would, I would almost argue it, it is a really, really big deal right now. Well, this little stream of consciousness that we're having here talking about so many different things brings to mind something that I've said for years, the city management profession is the, in my mind, the original multitasking profession. There's so many different things that you have to have knowledge about. You don't necessarily have to be the subject matter expert, but you darn well better have a wide range of uh, information, interest, and topics in which you can not only speak, but deal with in an intelligent and capable fashion. If you can't do that, you probably don't belong in this business. The best person to invite to your party over the holidays is a city manager. They can carry on a conversation about anything with anyone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just went from personnel to home rule to the 1968 constitution to wastewater management to deep well injection, <laughs> the whole nine yards, right? Yes, we, we've been, we've kind of wandered stream of conscience a little bit. So, one of your one of your um, specialty areas that you've you've grown into over the years is cultivation of young folks into leaders. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Oh God, thank you for that question. I I appreciate it. Uh, at this point in my career, uh, it's always been important, but at this point in my career, it is the single most important thing I do. Um, 
the greater majority of my time that I invest, even though we have tons of projects, I've got an action register sheet that's four pages long of projects that we have in the works. And those things are all important, important to our community and, and getting them done. But you don't get those things done without competent and capable people to do them. I don't care how good you are as a manager, you can't do it all yourself. And the better the people that you have working with you, the more you're going to accomplish, the more effective and the more efficient you're going to be in getting it accomplished. So so what does that look like? So so you're right, because I run two businesses I, and I get it, right? You're busy, 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 busy. How do you prioritize and what do you do to make sure you're spending time, you know, each day cultivating, mentoring, training those leaders to be to be good at what they do because we can always be occupied by the shit we have to do right now right i got i got 19 things i got to get done i'll worry about training my staff and mentoring them tomorrow and guess what happens to tomorrow it never quite comes what do you do to get that on your to-do list always 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 having conversations with my the, the people that are in my immediate charge about the ideas of uh, leadership, uh, guidance, management. I'll give you an example of a young lady that was uh, my finance director, recently promoted to assistant city administrator. Uh, I had a conversation with my council. They, the position didn't exist previously. They created it this year so that we could get someone prepared uh, for some succession planning, if you will. Um, we went to lunch together today out at our airport. We had the uh, the 2020 General Aviation Airport of the Year here in Arcadia. And we have on Tuesdays, we have Taco Tuesdays. We have anywhere from 75 to 120 or 30 planes that come in on Tuesdays. People from the community drive in. We got food trucks there. It's a Tuesday event. So I- Wait, wait, wait. So you sell, you have, you have some food trucks and some tacos and people get in their plane and fly there to get a free taco? You've heard of the $100 hamburger? Yeah, I mean, that's a hundred dollar hamburger. The pilot gets in his plane, flies to another airport where they have a restaurant, has a hamburger. It costs him a hundred dollars. Uh, that's exactly where my mind was. We have a hundred dollars. We used to have the world's largest fish fry up in Perry, Florida, Taylor County, <laughs> and my uncle would drive from Clearwater to get gets you know all the way up in his Cadillac to get a free fish sandwich. I'm like Charlie, what are you <laughs> doing? You <laughs> yeah. Anyway, getting back to the idea yeah, yeah. of uh, mentoring young people. Uh, uh, anyway, I took her with me today, went to lunch, and on the way, we talked about uh, a department director. I uh, said, you're now responsible for this individual. And we talked about how that person had grown over the last uh, several years, mm -hmm. how the person's approach was so different today than it was the day that I walked in the door. And I talked with her about him being in my office the other day and us dealing with an issue on a project that the vendor was not being forthcoming on, wasn't getting the project done. All right. He got the vendor on the phone. And I let him talk to the vendor. And that's just a moment. So I, I talked to this vendor secretary and I said, young lady, here's the way it works. You either get the people here to finish the job or we want our deposit back and we'll go find somebody else to do the job. They're going to be here tomorrow morning. 
<laughs> so what you're saying is instead of doing the, I'm sure you're going to say that you also do some formal stuff like, Hey, be sure to take leadership webinars. We'll pay for it. Be sure to take, yep. you know, a Friday off to go to this group and learn a little bit more, but you're saying embed it in, incorporate it into your constant style of letting them speak, letting them hear. Yes. And, and incorporating those lessons. So you may only spend seven minutes today on it, but you spent seven. I, sorry for the analogy. Oh, for, you're for three years. <laughs> for three years, I've been, I've been uh, trying to learn Spanish. And so every day I spend at least 15 minutes just sitting on Duolingo doing a couple lessons. I, I, you know, I'm still completely at beginner level, but you, you incorporate it right each day into, as opposed to saying, I'm going to go take a week and go immerse. It, it's It's got to be a constant part of what you do. It has to be a constant part of what you do. And you give people the opportunity to, to emulate. One of the things that I do, I do a lot of is storytelling. Storytelling. It. I am blessed with the ability to remember things that have happened. In remembering things that happen, I'm able to, to, and I pass this on to my folks, you, you remember a circumstance. This is similar to another circumstance I was in. Here's how it's similar. How is it different? All right. Recognize the similarities, identify the differences, and they could make, make good choices. Well, I remember stories. And I love to tell stories to illustrate what it is that I'm trying to convey. I've been in so many different situations and circumstances that every time something comes up, I'm able, we talk about ethics a lot. Just before I got here, the we have an elected marshal, police chief is a marshal. Uh, the, the marshal was arrested uh, for taking- What kind of marshal? Uh, a peacekeeper, do you say? Okay. Police chief. A police chief. Oh, the police chief. Okay. Marshal, but he's elected, independently elected. Okay. And operates independently. Uh, wait a the city of Arcadia has an independently elected marshal. City, city commissioner. We'll call, I mean, a uh, 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 police commissioner who's called police a marshal. Chief. Not a commissioner, police chief. He, he's called so the marshal. Police chief is elected by he the, runs the police department and he's totally independent of both the council and me. That's really anyway, interesting. I don't know any city that has that, but you guys. You got it. But there's one other, I think, uh, up near Stark somewhere. Maybe it is Stark, but okay. there's one other in the state of Florida. But he got arrested, was put in jail. The former city manager just before I got here was arrested and put in jail for stealing from the city. Um, ethics was a big issue when I got here. All right. So we focused on ethics really strongly still do we talk about it almost every staff meeting we talk about ethics in one way or another and i've got so many stories i can tell them on the issues of ethics that it illustrates to them it drives it home i don't just say be an ethical person or read the icma's uh, ethics statement we talk about it put it in real world terms how does how does one understand that? And there's so many things, experiences that we as managers can pass on, but you you have you have to be, in my mind, you have to be a storyteller. You know, I, I love that because when it comes to questions like ethics, right? And and um in my class, one of my final lectures is about 
making good choices, making ethical choices. And in the in the cold environment of a staff meeting or a classroom, of course, everybody shakes their head. Oh, I will always do the ethical thing. But a story presents the conflict. You know, you've been pushing for this program for two years. The mayor is finally on board. You're going to get that park you wanted, that transportation system you wanted, the new wastewater treatment plant you wanted, whatever that thing is. And then the mayor says, well, listen, I, I, Terry, I love this. This is a really good idea. Um, I want you to bring in my buddy, Joe. I know he's going to be a little higher, but, you know, he's not union and I don't want a union shop in here. I want you to go ahead and give him the job. Now you have a genuine conflict, right? Where you're like, oh shit, I want to get this wastewater treatment or this new park built, but now in order to get there, something I want, I got to do something unethical. And that's best told through a story because now you have context and you can see the conflict. I think one of the, in, in the concept of ethics, I think one of the best things that can happen with someone in being able to avoid ethical conflicts is that the, the way you walk and carry yourself every day as a professional tells other people whether or not they can approach you with those sorts of things or not. Those are the big things. But there are, there are a million small, small things that, that a professional can wind up in a little bit of a pickle with uh, from the concept of ethics if you're not careful, all right? Um, local rodeo here. We have the granddaddy rodeo of uh, the state of I've, Florida. I've been to it. Yeah. It's great. Uh, you know, people uh, will call up and say, uh, we got rodeo tickets. Uh, would you like to take the rodeo tickets? No, thank you. No. The city. Well, let's let's a, make it complicated, though. Um, you're mentoring some young children at the Boys and Girls Club, helping these kids out. One kid says, man, I would love to go to the rodeo. And somebody says, hey, Terry, I got I got tickets to the rodeo. I can't use them. You taking them is a violation of the gift law, but you're doing it with good intention, right? You say, I'm going to give them to these kids. <laughs> no, but that's my point, which is. Simple solution, and, and, give and them the, directly to the kids. Yeah, right. Well, that, well and that was going to be my follow-up, which is, the A, if you're going to give them ethical challenges, don't just say be ethical, because that doesn't give somebody the tools to understand. Everybody is confronted often, many times in their life, in their careers with, with ethical challenges. And in the dryness of a classroom or, or, you know, whatever, it doesn't seem like a big deal, right? And then the second part of that, Terry, is give them solutions, find ways around it to say to the mayor, mayor, that's a great idea. We're going to give your buddy all the opportunities that everybody else has to compete on this thing. And I will make sure I keep you updated, but you're not going to violate the, the RFQ, RFP rules, but you're going to let the mayor know, listen, I hear you. You want your friend to get that project. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure they're, they're fully informed. They get all the things so that you and I are protected on this. So giving the tools and techniques of how to get out of ethical situations or to resolve those ethical situations ethically is a, is a really important uh, skill set. And helping people understand that having the willingness to, to give up a job, there's not a job that's worth violating your ethical principles. There just isn't. But it's hard to get some people to understand that, you know, when you got three or four kids and a big mortgage and uh, a family that's uh, 
depending on you. But if you send that message out to the people around you, you'd be surprised how few times you ever get faced with those kinds of situations. Uh, I was faced with a situation with uh, uh, a, an elected official that kept telling my employees what to do. And I told him that if he didn't stop it, I was going to take an action, and I did. And unfortunately, the action wound up getting the guy arrested. Wow. That wasn't, that wasn't my intent, but that's we, what We had a city about. manager in Tallahassee, you know, talking about tickets, took tickets to the FSU football game, did not use them, gave them to his staff. And let them use them, thought he was fine, you know, because the person really put a lot of pressure on take. Hey, man, hey, man, oh, no, this is, it's all good. Everybody does it, blah, blah. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. He lost his job. Yeah. And it really hurt. And it hurt the city. He was a good, otherwise good city manager. I know people listening to this, well, how can it be so good? But he gave it to somebody, and he, but he didn't handle it correctly. What he should have said, Terry, you just nailed it. Hey, Joe, I'm not using those tickets, but I've got an employee now. There's a problem. That employee, probably shouldn't be taking the tickets. So it's, never, it's not easy. Here. We wouldn't be having these seminars if this was easy. <laughs> That's true. Right? I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so, but, so I want to. Storytelling is, a re, in my mind, really important storytelling. We managers need to be better storytellers. Well, and, you know, going full circle on this conversation, telling that story to your commissioners about the erosion and the degradation of home rule authority is a way to kind of convey that, right? To convey not just in the abstract, but let me tell you why and how this is hurting us. Let me tell you the story about a farmer who blah, 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 and a, you know, a, a development that went under because of blah, 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 those stories, and they're much more memorable. The, us old uh, guys. Go ahead. Uh, us old guys, uh, I don't know if you could call it getting a pass, but <clears throat> they kind of uh, allow us a little bit of latitude that they might not allow someone else. But when I can say, back when I started, this was a brand new law and this is how it was then and this is how it is now and here's how it changed. And they know that I've lived it and they know that I've seen it and experienced it. So it has an impact. And you've got to make it relevant. You can't just be, yep. you know, I was telling the story today. <laughs> About when I was working on my master's degree, I would take every lunch break, go to a little sandwich shop. I'd get a sandwich, a Congo bar, which is like a brown brownie, and uh, um, a glass of tea, and it was $5. That's an irrelevant story. Nobody cares that I walked uphill to school both ways. But if your story tells something that's important, I'll give you a great example. In 1975, you may remember, Ruben Askew was governor. He walked onto the floor of the Senate to lobby one of his bills. And the Senate president was a guy named Dempsey Barron, a cattle Ooh. farmer, you'll appreciate that, um, who told him to get the hell out of my Senate. That was in 1975. This past week, we had the governor not just come onto the floor of the Senate, but told the Senate what to do. And they said, yes, sir. <laughs> and, they, and they passed his bill. So that story has context, right, to today. So well, a lot of context. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, Terry, um, I was going to ask you, one of our, you know, we have this, this, this cheat sheet of questions that have been submitted, but you've answered several of them. Um, I, I, let me, how do you continue to build your leadership skills? You told it, to incorporate it into your daily existence, be mindful of it all the time. How do you yes. identify leaders on, on your team? We didn't ask that question. Tell us, how do you, you're working with a team, you have staff. How do you say, you know, that person 
is somebody I, I, I want to nurture and groom because I think they're going to be in management. What what is some of the criteria you use to identify that person and help grow them? Well, look, if you're going to help grow someone, the, I have three main questions that I ask if I'm looking to move someone to a position where they can move forward, get promoted, uh, go higher in the organization is, first of all, does the person have the knowledge, the skills, and the abilities to do the work? All right. Pretty basic question. You know, that's where we look at their resume, their experience, mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. That's pretty routine. The next one is, uh, does the person have the drive? Does the person have the things that are necessary, not just smart? There are a lot of smart people in this world that don't have an ounce of drive in them. They, they have to have that knot in the stomach, right? That 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 desire to get yes. in a little early or stay a little late. Absolutely. Uh, I know a lot of managers that want to hire the guru. They, they send out a request for applications and they look for the a guy that's got the most education and the most experience, and that's who they're going to hire. It goes a lot. For, by the time someone comes to me, I already know if they're technically competent and capable. I want to know, do they have the attitude and the perspective that fits the organization? Are they for the organization as a whole, not just their shop? Uh, don't, don't be just a, a fire chief that is all about the fire department, doesn't give a damn about the rest of the city. All right. If I'm looking to that fire chief, perhaps to one day be an assistant city administrator or manager, I want to know that he cares about the whole or he or she cares about the whole organization. So you're looking for the person with that extra spark of, of drive that, that you say, this drive. is somebody I can nurture and grow, and, uh, not just somebody it, who's smart. And, and the third thing is, does the organization, sometimes the limits of the organization are important. Does your organization have the, the resources necessary to help bring that person to the next level? Some people take a lot more time and energy than others, all right? And where when I decide where I'm going to invest our resources, do I have the time? Do I have the, the other resources that are necessary to get that person where he or she needs to be in the time we need them to be there? Right. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I want to close with this. Tell us, and I, and I, I hope you'll talk about the rodeo, but tell us something cool about uh, Arcadia that we don't know that makes people want to go there. Uh, well, it is uh, a still very much a cattle and agricultural community. Um, I, God bless me when I wound up here. Uh, the people here are the best people I've ever been around. And I've been around some good folks, but the people in this community are just a blessing to be around. And it's the pl it's the place where you would like your kids to grow up. Oh, fantastic. That's well, you know, I, can I can I for a second? I, I, I went to the rodeo. It was about four or five years ago. It was a blast. Um, very well done. Very professional. Um, and what, what are you about an hour and a half from Orlando? Uh, about an hour and a half. Yeah, I, two hours, hours from Tampa, hour for, from Fort Myers. Uh, yeah. So you're sort of you. It's 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 worth the trip to go up and and enjoy. And because when was the last time you went to a road? I mean, for most people, when you last went to a rodeo? You and know? a real good one too. <laughs> and it's just fun, you know. It's there's a lot of goofiness going on. There's a lot of sideshow stuff going on. The crowd was a blast. 
Um, I, I really, uh, it was a fun uh, destination thing to do. Uh, I found myself wholly, wholly entertained. Were you here for the new arena or were you in the old arena? Well, I don't, I don't know the difference between the two, but it was probably, it was, it was shorter than five years ago. So probably three and a half to four years ago. Would that or have been the new one? Been, it's a covered, covered arena. It with was the covered, big yeah. We were covered. The, the, the performers were not. Okay. Then yeah, that was the old arena. We have a new arena, 8,000 seat arena, completely covered indoors, got huge fans, um, I'd tell you the name of the fan, but I don't think I can say that out here. <laughs> big A blank yeah. blank fan. Yeah, yeah that's what they're called. I think, you know what? This is a podcast. Go ahead, Terry. We can say it. <laughs> big ass fan. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Terry Stewart, the city administrator of the city of Arcadia with a really cool rodeo. Terry, uh, 50 years of government experience. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights. I learned a lot today, and I really appreciate your taking the time with us. I want to thank you. This has been a really fun experience. appreciate oh, it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, because I, I did too. Folks, thank you. this is Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you so much for being with us.